It gives me great pleasure to introduce someone who I admire, respect, appreciate, look up to. I can call her my friend. Uh, she's a mentor, she's a boss, named one of the most creative people in business by Fast Company, one of the most influential designers working today. She is an author and educator, curator, and if you haven't listened to Design Matters podcast, it is amazing. I, I was interviewed by Debbie on stage at How Design Live, and she had information about me. I, I literally have no idea how she got it. I think she called my mom. An amazing researcher, an amazing creator, and I would like to, if we can, I'm not quite sure how this is going to happen. I think it's going to be out of magic. We're going to go live to Debbie Millman. Woo! Round of applause for Debbie, y'all. <laughs> Came up with a brand new word, auto magic. <laughs> auto magic. There we go. Thank you so much. I really, really so grateful for you to join us. I was uh, just singing your praise, and I want to just say it again to your face. You inspire me every day. I think you always see me tweeting and sharing your class on Creative Live, a brand called You. You've been traveling all over the world doing all kinds of exciting stuff, and your podcast is my favorite. Thank you for everything that you do. Chase, you're so good to me. Thank you. All right, well, we're going to talk to, uh, we've got 100 souls in this room here in Seattle. You've been to this space, I believe, and we are hanging on the edge of our seat. What we're talking about is designing our life. We're, you know, you, you gave me an amazing, lovely blurb for the book, so you know that we're in the middle of an, a system where we are imagining what's possible for ourselves. We're designing a plan to get there. We haven't quite yet executed against us and then against it, and then we're going to amplify it with our community. But in the in terms of designing our life, you have designed one of the most extraordinary lives of any creator I know. And what can you share with us? What's the secret? Well, there's not one secret. Um, I was listening to your interview with the student that you had in the studio. And I got to hear a little bit at the end and you were encouraging her to just start posting, you know, just start. Yeah. Um, yeah. My question would be, if not now, when? When? And I think a lot of people think that if they wait, they'll be more confident or they'll be more secure or they'll be more talented. The fact of the matter is, if you're waiting for a feeling state to happen in the future to make you feel better than you do today about doing something, you're going to wait for the rest of your life. The only way to start to feel more comfortable about doing something is to actually do it. <laughs> um, I, I have spent a lot of time thinking and talking about confidence. And a lot of that was motivated by a conversation that I had with Danny Shapiro. And I know that you and I have talked about this, um, about the nature of confidence. And I had interviewed Danny Shapiro and she's a writer, quite a good writer, um, for my podcast. And after the podcast, we went into my office at the school of visual arts and she saw on my desk, a whole bunch of books that had been stacked up on confidence. Um, there was a whole slew of confidence books that had come out around that time. And she looked at the books and she kind of scoffed and she said, oh, I think confidence is overrated. 
And I was like, what? Because for me, it was the Holy Grail. That's why there was a stack of books there. (laughs) She said that most of the, um, most of the really apparently confident people that she knew were kind of jerks and that they were um, a little bit arrogant. And she felt that if you were, confident that that was something if you were truly confident that that was something that was just inhabiting you it wasn't something you needed to show so anybody that was apparently uh confident was likely compensating and she said that what was more important than confidence to her was courage courage to sort of take that first step when you don't have any clear understanding of whether or not you're going to be successful and that step into the unknown that step into the faith of just doing it for the sake of the joy of doing it was really more important but (laughs) because I'm still I was still on that search for the holy grail called confidence I spent about another year thinking about that conversation and and really trying to understand the nature of stepping into that courage and then what happens And I decided that my definition of confidence was the successful repetition of any endeavor. That is what helps create confidence. So courage is the birthplace of confidence. You take that step into the unknown, hoping that you will be able to do something successfully. And then that successful attempt, if you are able to do it successfully, breeds more confidence as you do it over and over. Now, the likelihood of that happening successfully the first time is not something that we should count on because think about all of the things we experience and try to do as humans, walking, talking, eating, like the most basic things takes practice. So if the most basic things take practice, even even potty trading takes time, right? <laughs> even, even the most mundane thing needs to be practiced in order to do it. So if you expect that you're going to be successful the first time, it likely means you're a superhero. And unless any of us are starring in the Marvel Cinematic Universe of movies, likely we're just mortals. And so my my suggestion is to expect that anything really great is going to take some time, that you're likely going to fail, that if you're not failing enough, you're probably taking not taking enough risks, and that you'll begin to develop confidence as you practice doing it successfully. So if you, if you see it as a practice, that if you start, you're not going to be great. Think about how we learn how to play the piano. It takes time. And then over time, you successfully do it well. And one of the examples that I like to give about confidence is driving a car. So I can't see anybody but Chase, but I'm going to assume that if I ask this question, almost all the hands in the room are going to go up. So Chase, you have to tell me. Can we, I mean, let's turn, let's actually turn the camera onto the audience if we can. Is that possible? Oh, okay. So then I can see this. Is that possible? No. The camera guy's like, uh-oh. <laughs> okay. Okay. There's a, there's a tight. <laughs> okay. So how many of you, when you were learning to drive, were nervous the first time you got behind the wheel? <laughs> okay. Did everybody raise their hands? Almost everybody, right? Yep. All right. How and the ones that didn't are psychopaths. <laughs> people now, after driving for at least a year or more, um, 
are deathly nervous about getting behind the wheel? Raise your hands. Okay, you all have car confidence. <laughs> you have uh, car confidence because you learned how to drive, and then once you did it successfully, think about for anybody that's ever in, in the room has ever gotten a ticket, a speeding ticket. Don't you feel after the speeding ticket like you're going to get another ticket immediately and you drive really carefully because you no longer have that confidence until you build it up again, until you drive successfully without being pulled over again for speeding. Um, it doesn't mean you're not going to speed. You just know that you can successfully get away with it. <laughs> Amazing. That's, that's, that's confidence. That's car confidence. So what I recommend that you do is try to, to take small steps. Um, and small moves in the direction that you want to go in. And then keep doing it until you start to feel more confident doing it because you've already done it. You know, the reptilian brain, which we all have, which is the oldest and in many ways strongest part of the brain because it controls all of our involuntary behavior. It's a very powerful part of the brain. You can't will your brain to digest food. You can't will your brain to continually beat your, your heart. So what we need to understand is that fear is in the same place as all of those other involuntary behaviors. That, that part of the brain, that reptilian part of the brain is what keeps you from making a lot of really risky moves because you're reptilian brain wants to keep you safe from the lions and the tigers. And so you're never going to be able to will yourself to be like, woohoo, change, awesome, let's pile on. You're going to be change, uncertainty, insecurity, reptilian brain, reptilian brain. So if you know that, you can be a little bit more gentle with yourself in terms of being able to step into that unknown space. Know that you're going to be doing it and feeling uncomfortable, but that doesn't mean that you don't do it anyway. Amazing, and you, your tiger thing, we just covered that, so okay. our little head-heart connection there, thank you very uh, much. Yeah. Yep, we I got think it. One of the things that um, I observe, and that I think a lot of folks in popular culture, we look at our heroes, and so right now I'm looking at you, the, the audience is looking at you, and thousands of people from around the world are tuned in, they're like, yeah, but that's Debbie Millman. And Debbie Millman is a genius designer. Before I put my makeup on. <laughs> but Debbie Millman is a genius designer. She's sold her company for tons of money. She's published all kinds of books. She's the chair in, for the Masters in Branding at SVA. She's, you know, the list just goes on and on. And there's a belief that you never started at Square One. So I would love for you to share what was it like when you filmed the first episode, recorded the first episode of Design Matters. Okay, so even before that, I have to say that my posting Design Matters was a bit of a Hail Mary in trying to reestablish my connection with my creativity because I was running a branding consultancy and I was running the branding consultancy at that point for about 10 years. I started at Sterling in 1995 and I started Design Matters in 2005. And when I got to Sterling, I had gone from previously being a designer and then going to another company that was a very, very, very prestigious design company at the time. 
And I wanted so badly to work there that I took a job not as a designer because they wouldn't hire me as a designer because they didn't think I was good enough. I went as an account executive, never having been an account executive before, which is the person that manages the creative process. I mean, I wasn't really, really great at that either. Um, and then I ended up leaving that job and getting another job where I was, I'd taken what I also thought was, again, another step down. It was in a branding consultancy and I got hired as a salesperson and I thought, okay, well, I've reached the sort of bottom rung of um, what is possible in my creative career. Um, and, but then what I ended up finding out was that I was really good at sales. And I'd never, ever known that. I never had an opportunity to, to be in a position where I was selling anything. I actually think it was just my desperation that was wearing off on people. Um, but in any case, um, when I, for the first time in my professional life, was actually good at something, I, that's all I wanted to do. I became sort of addicted to the idea of being good at something. And when... I had an opportunity to, to make money for the first time in my life and to be successful. It was like, okay, I'm going to give away everything else that I'm doing. I'm not going to write anymore. I'm not going to paint anymore. I'm not going to draw anymore. I'm not going to do anything but just work 24-7 at this thing that I'm good at so I can be good all the time. Um, and that lasted for about eight or nine years. And then I, would, I felt like I was losing a, a piece of my soul. My creative sort of identity had all but disappeared. And I got a cold call from a internet radio network. You know, that was 2005. So, you know, YouTube had just been launched. And so people, um, this, this, this um, fledgling internet radio network called me and asked me if I'd be interested in being a host. And I thought they were offering me a job. And in fact, they were offering me an opportunity to pay them to <laughs> produce the show. But I was so desperate to be doing something creative that would sort of keep me um, accountable to doing something on a regular basis that I decided, you know, I had some money. I was, that's all I was doing was working and making money at that point. And so I decided to invest a little bit that, of that into myself. It wasn't that much money at the time. And so I started the, the show. I started it on February 4th, 2005. And it was an, an, a live internet radio show um, the producers sort of reminded me of Wayne and Garth from <laughs> Wayne's World. I felt like they, it, was, it was sort of like this. It was uh, remote. They were in Arizona. I was in New York. And I, I sort of felt like they, would, they were living in a basement smoking bong hits um, <laughs> while they were doing the show with me. <laughs> and I did it for four years. I did it for four years not knowing what the hell I was doing just for the sheer joy of feeling creative again. Um, and the sound is terrible. And it was the early, early stages when I actually started uploading to iTunes, there was no podcast section. I only was uploading because the show was airing live and then it was re-airing at like two in the morning. And so my friends that couldn't listen to it live and didn't want to stay up until two in the morning were asking me how they could listen to it. And mostly it was my father, actually, who wanted to um, and so I thought, you know what, let me let me start uploading it as if I'm an indie musician to iTunes and then point people to that link. And that's and that's how it started. And I remember when the podcast section then launched, I think it was in October of that year, they had a list of the top podcasts. And I think I was number 85 on the list, but there were only 100 podcasts. So <laughs> 
that impressive, but it was still, you know, meant that I was there. Um, and so it started really as I, I joke, it was, it was through telephone line. I remember my first guest was John Fulbrick, who is a friend of mine, who's very gregarious, very talkative. And I felt like if I, if I choked that he could just take over cause he's so gregarious. And he at the time was a book designer at Simon and Schuster. And I remember taping up all over my office, all of things that would remind me of things that I could talk to him about. That's how how nervous I was, but I really loved doing it and I kept doing it. And after four years, Bill Drentel, the late great Bill Drentel invited me to do it, to take the show to Design Observer, which I did. And I've been there now for over 10 years, just on Design Observer. And it's still, you know, it's one of the oldest and longest running. It's still independent. I'm not part of any network. I love having my freedom. And it's turned out to be one of the greatest gifts of my life. But who would have known? You know, I didn't even, I had no, no knowledge. It was just something that I pursued and then I liked it and I kept doing it. And I'm not the best and I'm not the biggest and I'm definitely um, not the richest. But I, I am just so grateful to have the opportunity to do it the way I want to do it. And so that's just a big gift. But you are the most awesome can we give Debbie a, hand, a round of applause? Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you so much for being vulnerable and sharing with us your story. Thank you. I, 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 I want to add something because I do understand what it means to want things. You know, when I didn't really, you know, I started Design Matters in 2005, and at that point I was um, in my 40s, in my, in my early to mid 40s. And, and that's the thing I'm probably most known for now. And Being in your 40s? <laughs> <laughs> now I'm, I'm two years from 60, so that's kind of crazy. Wow, um, amazing. I, I, want, I want everybody to know that, you know, a lot of people ask me what kept me trying to do things, what kept me wanting to do things, because I've gotten a lot of rejection in my life, and I've been really public with that. And one thing that I do want to let people know is that I, I always felt not as good as lots and lots and lots of people. And yet, even when I was rejected, I kept trying to have something better. And so a lot of people have asked me, why did you keep, why did you keep pushing? Why did you keep pushing? And I finally realized what it was. I finally realized that my hope for something better for myself was bigger than my shame at, at what I had experienced in whatever it was, the rejection or whatever. And so... Think about, what, for everybody that's in your audience that's really trying to design a better life or create something bigger or more um, exciting or more loving or more open, think about what it is you really want more than anything else. And if that's what you want more than anything else, if that's the one thing that you want, then pursue it as if your life depends on it, because it does. And, and, and you have the power to make that change if you want it badly enough. So I just wanted to say, you know, I've always wanted a lot for my life and I still do. I never feel good enough. And, and no matter what anybody might say about somebody's stature in the world, the one thing I've learned after doing 500 plus Design Matters interviews is that no one feels 100% secure ever, ever. So, so know that you're in good company and know that 
if you really want to make a difference with your life, you can. So that's it. Ladies and gentlemen, the inimitable Debbie Millman. Thank you so much, Debbie. How big heart chase you know that's the thing about you you have such a big heart I'm bad at a lot of stuff but I have a big heart I'll take it <laughs> no. I'm I'm so grateful for you thank you so much for showing up for our community you're you're an amazing inspiration and so grateful for your time and I'm gonna give you a call later we'll chat okay okay have a round of applause for Debbie you all thank you so much Debbie all right that about wraps it up but uh, hey before you bounce Two quick things. Um, actually, I'm going to go three quick things. Thing one, A, thank you so much for being a part of this community. And I'm not quite sure how you, you landed on this podcast. It doesn't matter to me. The fact that we're all in this together and that we're able to have a conversation is awesome. I feel uh, honored to be in your ears right now and that uh, you've paid attention to what I've been doing, what Creative Live has been doing for some time. And whether it's been a day or 10 years, I just want to say thank you. It's also really important to know on the backside of that that I, I do a lot of responding to comments. So hit me up, on, you know, direct message me on, on Instagram or Twitter or at me. I try and respond as much as possible. So let's have a conversation that transcends me just being in your ears here. Let's try and do it some, somewhere out there in, on the internet land. That's thing one. Thing two, again, I'm not quite sure what channels you pay attention to me and my work, but please go check out. I'm at Chase Jarvis or slash Chase Jarvis or whatever on all the platforms. And it's really important to me. Also, if you wouldn't mind checking out Creative Live, it's something that not only myself, but 120 other committed hardcore badass people come to work every day uh, to build the place where creators and entrepreneurs learn. So check that out. They're just slash creative live or at creative live all over out there on the internet. All right. Until again, uh, probably tomorrow. I hope I'll hear you. I'll be in your ears maybe tomorrow and I'll look for your comments on the internets. Bye.